Luke 15, there we go. Um, and uh, welcome to our guests. We're glad you're with us. We pray God's blessing on you this morning. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, the lead pastor. And most Sundays I get to bring God's Word. And we are going through a three-part series on um, the Father's heart, who the God the Father is from Luke 15. We're learning um, from Jesus. Actually, the very words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus is contained in Luke 15. Um, so it's wonderful to hear from Him in this very direct way, of course. All of God's Word is His Word, but this is Jesus Himself teaching. So we'll be digging into chapter 15. And this week I want to talk about being, um, I want to talk about the older brother in the stories. Um, have you guys ever noticed uh, how much your mood or perspective can influence your experience? Have you ever noticed that? How much your, your mood or perspective can influence your experience? Have you ever had a day where everything is uh, sunny and good? You're full of hope and gratitude and and so everything just kind of is a little sweeter that day and nicer. Your, your conversations are more meaningful and helpful. Um, work's more enjoyable. Even things that are difficult normally, like traffic or taking out the garbage, are more bearable. Uh, there's, you see in every cloud a silver lining. Have you ever had a day like that? I, I hope you have. Um, and then uh, on the other side, have you ever had a day where everything was dark and gloomy? where you were full of cynicism and frustration, and as a result, it kind of influenced your perspective and experience of everything, uh, where it kind of poisoned everything to some degree. Your conversations with people close to you became arguments. Your work seemed unbearable. Traffic jams seemed like eternal suffering. And, and, and every good thing had a downside. There was a fly in every ointment on that day. Have you ever had a day like that? And if you think about it, you can have two days where the actual circumstances are exactly the same. They're no different. Yet your mood and perspective uh, filters everything. And those same circumstances, those same situations become either wonderful or terrible. All based on your mood and perspective. Well, similarly and more significantly, how we think and feel about God influences our experience really in every way and not just our subjective experience not just our impression of things and our personal perspective on how we think and feel about life but our actual experience as well it affects really how life is lived and certainly affects us eternally because of this and many other reasons the most important thing in your life is what you think about god We've been talking about that. And specifically, what you think about God the Father. There are three persons in the one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person of the Trinity manifests an aspect of God's character to us. And God the Father, and what we think about God the Father, really is determinative for our lives. Who we are, what life's about, and what eternity is about. So what we think about God is the most important thing in our life. And, and this chapter, as we've been learning, is given because people were thinking wrongly about God. They were getting God the Father wrong, and therefore they were living certain lifestyles that were wrong, that were lost lifestyles. And, and those two parties that Jesus addresses are the tax collectors and sinners. They are, they're getting God wrong, and, and they're wandering away, and they're coming back because they're, they're understanding through Jesus what God is really like. And then there are the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the religious people. They're getting God wrong. And they're actually not wandering away. They're staying in, at least appears to be, staying in the Father's house, even though their hearts are very far away. And so Jesus brings this teaching to adjust their understanding, to present who the Father is, what He's like, so that they would be rescued from their lostness and they would come and live under the Father. So that's what we've been doing as in this mini-series. And today I want to focus on the elder brother. Um, actually, the, the stories here, the three stories, are, are aimed at the elder brother, the elder brother types of people, more than anybody else. Uh, we 
commonly know this story as the story of the prodigal son, but it's not about the prodigal son primarily. Uh, we, we, like, we like that story. It's wonderful. It's, a, it's compelling. It's attractive to hear about the prodigal son coming back and the father's grace, but it, it's really not about the prodigal son or not even primarily about the, product, the younger son types. It's about the elder son and the elder son types. The, this these series of stories, these three stories are aimed at elder brother types. They're aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes. And not just the Pharisees and the scribes, but all the elder brother types who should ever hear these stories. I want you to identify yourself, to some degree at least, with the elder brother in the story. Because the reality is we all tend to one or the other and probably both. Older brother and younger brother behavior. And we need to be rescued so let's pray and ask God to do that this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You that You are such a compassionate God, so good and merciful and faithful and loving that You do not leave us to ourselves. That You give us Your Word and Your Word comes in and rescues us. Because it isn't just content and logic. It's living and active. It's You speaking life and truth and rescuing us. So, Oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would You rescue us this morning and teach us what You're really like that we might live in You and be saved from being younger or older brothers and be used of You to tell others as well about You. So help, Lord, as we look at Your Word and as I teach it. Oh, would You help me? How I need Your help, Lord. Um, but we're confident because of who You are and we trust You and we thank You. Amen. I'll be reading the, the whole chapter once again. Um, if you've been with us the past two weeks, you've heard this, but uh, we can never hear enough. So listen to God's Word from Luke chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God's Word from Luke chapter 15. Let's dig in and learn from the elder brother. He represents the religious people who were complaining that Jesus would receive sinners and eat with them. Uh, This was no little thing to do that, by the way. Eating with somebody in that culture in particular, really in every culture to some degree, but in that culture in particular was full acceptance. uh, of them as a friend or even family member. So Jesus welcoming them and eating with them is an expression of Him receiving them fully. And and these people are uh, irreligious people. They've not been faithful. They would be Jewish people who grew up ethnically Jewish but had rejected the faith, had wandered away, and were known for reckless living. And yet Jesus is welcoming them and eating with them. And so the elder brothers... Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are upset. So Jesus tells this story to really teach them. This is really a story for the elder brothers. Certainly we can apply it in many other ways, but it's to get at elder brothers. God has preserved it in His Word, not because it's just a kind of cool story, but elder brothers persist. And elder brothers persist in the church. And elder brothers persist in your heart and my heart. There's a reality behind this story uh, the, the, really the insanity of our fallenness as human, the sinful nature, uh, is such in us that we always want to be an elder brother or a younger brother. We're always drifting that way. There is new life in Christ that rescues us, but that, that brokenness remains in us and we always drift. So at some point or another, we're always one or the other, and I find myself, in, in, even in, within a span of a minute, I can be both. And so this story is for us to rescue us. So let's dig in and learn about the elder brother. The story is set up wonderfully by Jesus. He's a master storyteller. Um, and he's telling this story to get at people's hearts. There's something about stories that, that awaken um, our minds and our hearts to hear truth. And so Jesus is telling this story in the, this culture at this time. And it's a gripping story. And there's a turn in the story. It's all set up with the father's lavish and ridiculous grace towards this younger son. The younger son shaming the family. We've gone through all that. And then verse 25, there's a turn here. And if you could keep the verse 25 and on up uh, on the overhead, that'd be great. Uh, and it says in verse 25, now his older son was in the, in the field. So all this has been going on. The older son has not been there. And now there's a turn in the story. That it's a really a dramatic turn. Now, the older son. And so this is a setup for the older son. The whole story in many ways is a setup for the older son to watch his reaction and, and really to learn from it. To, to analyze the older son's reaction. And by the way, the original audience would have been really on the edge of their seats uh, as they listened. Because they would have been listening to this story, they would have understood what the younger son had done and how terrible it was, how awful it was to shame his father and his brother and his family and the whole village with his, his uh, terrible behavior. He's rejected the faith. He's rejected his family. He's wasted the family inheritance, probably millions of dollars. So they would have understood all that. And then they heard the story of the father's lavish 
forgiveness, his, his amazing humility to humble himself and run through the village to receive his son, to really uh, be shamed in that humility for the sake of his son so that his son might be honored. And then we've learned about how he was honored. And they've been listening to the story and, and then they're hearing about the celebration. And they would have understood in their culture that this is the whole village now celebrating with the father. The whole village which would have been predisposed to punish and shame that younger son has now uh, got in line with the father and honored the son with this celebration. And everyone would have been listening because he said a man had two sons when he started the story. Everyone would have been listening thinking, what about that elder son? And now Jesus is turning the story. Now his older son was in the field. And everybody's thinking, what's going to happen now? This is the, the point in, in, the, in the story, right? The point in the movie where are like, oh, okay, now here's where it gets really hot and intense. This is where we're going to see something happen. This is where conflict happens. So that's what's going on here. So the older son appears in the story. He's in the fields. And he, he comes in and he draws near the house. And it says he hears music and dancing. He's coming in from the field. He's been a diligent son. He's working. He comes in. He hears music and dancing. Now this was about like dinner time or so, right? 6 p.m. or so. He's coming back from the field and he hears music and dancing. You don't have parties you know, just as you finish the work of the day. There's no, been no party planned or anything. He's coming near and he hears music and dancing. Um, it's uh, interesting, how do you hear dancing? Right? Dancing is not singing. Well, dancing is, is a celebration. And in that, that culture, they would have done like group dancing and there would have been certain songs they would have sung and there would have been clapping and so forth. So he hears a celebration. He hears dancing. He hears them singing these songs to, to which they would dance. So he's coming back. He's expecting it you know, to be the end of the day, quiet house, and he hears this party going on. He just, if it helps, just think he hears people doing the electric slide as they're singing, We Are Family. All right, that's what's going on. All right, he comes back. And by the way, just, I worked it out that you can actually do the electric slide to We Are Family, any four beat song. You can work that out later. But anyhow, that's what's going on here. He comes back and he hears them doing the electric slide, singing We Are Family, and there's just lots of celebration. And he's like, what's happening? What's going on? And so he asks, it says in the ESV, a, a servant. The word actually is young man, um, which can be used as a servant because young men would be servants. Um, but uh, Kenneth Bailey, by the way, I've used a lot of his material. He's a theologian who lives in the Mideast. He says it's more likely the young men that would have been hanging out in the village and would have kind of been following the whole story kind of the, you know, the bystanders. And they're there, they're not actually not in the house, but they're there, all the young men of the, of the village are there, like, whoa, what's going on? They're, they're checking out what's going on. And he comes up and he says, the elder brother says, what's up? What's going on here? And the younger man reports to the older brother what's happening. He tells them what's going on. And the younger man's uh, statement really represents the village's perspective. That's what Kenneth Bailey says. He would have he would have said, this is what's going on. This is now what we've come to understand. And so he says, um, he says what's going on. He tells them what's happened, that, that uh, his brother has come back. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received them back safe and sound. And so he reports to the older brother what's going on. Uh, and again, this would represent the village's perspective because they've gotten in line with the father and the father's desire to to take on shame, to humble himself, to honor the son, to welcome him back. And so he, it gets reported. And then the older son, at this point, hears that story and understand for him what it's like. This is, a, this is a, like a punch in the gut for him. It's not what he expected. He's been working the whole day. This is totally unexpected. There's a huge celebration going on. And you're just like, just to say your younger brother is back is enough of a slap in the face, punch in the guts. But then that your father's killed the fattened calf because he's back safe. And, and so it's, it's too much for him to deal with. And, and he's overwhelmed. It says that he's angry. Um, but he was angry. Uh, it, it's a, an understatement. He, he's furious. He's, that word can mean all different ranges of angry. He's angry. He's furious. He, he's been, it's a slap in the face. He's shocked. To hear that this is going on, um, that, that, that 
the, old, the younger son has been received this way and they're, they're, they're celebrating. And so he refuses to go in. And we listen to that in our culture and we might think, well, yeah, I'd be like that too. You know, I mean, just give me a few minutes here. I've got to process what's going on. Then I'll be in. But that's not what's going on. That's not culturally the context. The refusal to go in is actually a statement he's making purposefully. He's angry and he's saying, I will not go in there. I will never set my foot in that house as long as my brother's there. That's the, that's the thought here. He's refusing to go in. In that culture, when you had a, a family gathering like this, a family celebration, um, in that culture, older brothers, the eldest brother was a big deal. Uh, and he would actually be like the family spokesman, the family representative. And so if you had a celebration like this, the father actually is not the guy out there being the MC and so forth. He's sitting with the, the elders of the village and so forth. And the brother, the elder brother is supposed to assume the responsibility to come in and kind of be with the host, to be the one who's interacting with the guests, uh, making sure everything's working well. So when the brother comes back, the elder brother coming back, that's the expectation. That's the cultural expectation. And he's refusing to go in. It would be like if you were at a wedding and for some reason the, the best man got upset and he decided that he was not going to participate in the wedding. And it wasn't just that he didn't show up. He actually walked over to the edge of, of the stage or whatever and just did this. The whole wedding. It would ruin the wedding, right? Something like that. I mean, that just wouldn't happen. Um, but that's the sort of thing that's going on here. When the elder brother refuses to go in, he's making a statement that everyone would have understood. Um, I'm not, I do not endorse this. I reject my brother. But I not only reject my brother, but I reject my father and what my father has done. It's just too outrageous. So there's a, there's a point here. This is a, a point of tension, a climax, controversy, conflict here where, the, where everything that the elder brother has thought and uh, in, in all his, his perspective is confronted and he doesn't like it and he's angry and he will not go in. He will not, he will not participate. He is dishonoring the father, insulting the father really, uh, and and it's, it's a big deal. Now, let's back up a little bit and think about the elder brother's perspective a bit and understand that, that it's not just like he just had a bad attitude. There are some realities for an elder brother in this context that he's having to process. He's, he's certainly dishonoring his father. He's certainly making statements about what he thinks about grace for his younger brother. But this younger brother has really done damage to the family really hurt the family. He's wasted a huge part of the family fortune. He's heaped shame on generations. Remember we talked about the, the family estates, the farms would have been handed down and they would have built homes. You didn't move somewhere else, you just built another home on the estate so the extended family would have been there. And so he's, he's basically taken his portion of that, probably a million dollars, and wasted it. It's heaped shame on generations and their hard work. He's gone against the wishes of the father and the whole village. He's rejected the family faith in what he did. He went to a far country. He lived among pigs. He rejected uh, the faith, Old Testament faith. Uh, He's left the father and son alone. And then he dares to show up. And probably, you know, an elder brother in that case would be thinking, this is just another scheme of his. My scheming younger brother's back. And he's just trying to weasel his way back into the family somehow. That's the sort of perspective the older brother would have had, and and much of it would have been justified. The younger brother coming back also is expecting to be taken in at the expense, ultimately, of of not only the father, but the elder brother. Because when he took his part of the the inheritance, the rest of it belongs to the elder brother. The rest of the inheritance, probably would have been two-thirds of the whole estate, would go to the elder brother. That's how the law worked for them at the time. And so when the son comes back, now he's going to have to take care of the younger son at his expense. Really, the father is still there, so it's still in the father's hands. But it's also the younger brother. So, so it's, in some ways, that's my fattened calf that's being spent on my brother. And not only that, he's going to come back in the family, and now we're going to have to support him, and I'm probably going to have to give a portion of my inheritance to him. Uh, and he's gonna, if he has any authority, he's displacing my authority because I'm the, the sole son right now, and now he's going to come back. The ring on the finger is basically a sign of the family's authority. So, uh, so that elder son is paying a high cost. 
to receive this younger son. That's part of the background. That needs to be understood. And, and by the way, this touches on an important, very important topic. Um, and, it, and it comes up in the discussion of this passage even. The, t- the whole idea of atonement. The whole idea of payment for damage, for, for sin. Sin is damage, relational damage against God or one another. And, and some have read this story. Actually, uh, Kenneth Bailey talks about this in the Muslim world. They see this story and, and they don't believe, uh, Muslims don't believe in atonement for sin. They believe that simply by divine fiat, God decides whether to forgive you or not. Um, and so they read this story, and, and it's not just Muslims, but others read this story and say, well, the father forgave the son, you know. He just decided to forgive him and welcome him back. And there's no atonement here, but there's atonement throughout the story. There's payment throughout the story. The elder son pays quite a bit to have his younger son, younger brother come back. The father really is the one who has the authority over that. He pays so much, he shames himself. There's a lot of payment made to provide for the younger son's restoration. Guys, atonement for damage, payment for damage always happens one way or the other. The very definition of damage is loss, right? It's loss of something that you have. Uh, whether it's an actual hardware or a relationship, it's loss, it's damage to that. And, and when there's loss, there's, there's, there's payment. It's, it's inherent in the definition of damage and in the reality of that. So, so whenever there's damage, there's always payment. Whether it's relational or otherwise, there's always payment. And, and, and we'll just think of it this way. If I come to visit your house, and though I'm a very excellent driver, I go to back out of your driveway, and I back over your mailbox and knock it down. Is there damage? Yeah, your mailbox is damaged. Who pays for it? Somebody pays for it, right? You might, because you like me so much, you might just decide, we'll cover it, don't worry about it. But you're paying for the damage. You're paying for the new mailbox. Or I say, oh, I'm really sorry about that. That's the fifth one I've done in the past year. Uh, But here, here's, here's 150 bucks. Get a new mailbox. But the mailbox gets damaged and someone has to pay for it. You either absorb it, or I pay for it, or someone comes along, the, neighbor, the nice neighbor who's the multimillionaire, oh, that guy did that again. Here you go. Here's money for a new mailbox. Someone pays for the mailbox. Relationally, it works the same way too, right? If I come up into your group of friends, and just for whatever reason, I wouldn't do this, but I just come up and I insult you in front of your friends. Or I reveal some detail about your life that's not helpful and they don't need to know that or whatever. Just say something, right? And then walk away. Is there damage done? Who pays for the damage? Well, in that case, you pay for the damage. Your reputation your, with others is, is affected. Um, and it, if I don't do anything, you know, you're paying for it, I could come in and just say, you know what, I, I made that up, I'm sorry, and, uh, and apologize or whatever. I could somehow try to come in and intervene, but the fact is there's damage done and someone pays for it. It's an inescapable fact of life and relationship that when there's damage, there's always payment. So it's absurd to say that there's no atonement. There's no payment. There must be always payment. And the wonderful thing about Christianity, it, it, it confronts this reality head on and brings the ultimate solution. Because the, the, the greatest damage done is to say to the one who's made all things, who's perfectly good and holy and always kind, always patient, who's like the Father in the story, but even greater, to say to Him, no, I want nothing to do with you. I want to live life on my own. Or no, uh, you're, you're overbearing and mean and I reject you and I want to do it my own way. Or, no, you're not gracious and kind. You're a slave uh, taskmaster and I want to somehow earn the right for you to treat me right. Or whatever it might be. That's what sin is. And it's damage. It's insulting to God. It's a broken relationship with God. And there must be atonement. And really, that, that central relationship affects every other relationship. So Christianity comes at the need for atonement head on in the person of Christ who voluntarily pays for the damage you have done and I have done against God and against others. 
pays for that in his own life given on our behalf, his righteous life received, the, the, the just punishment put on him in his death, he dies for our sins, and he rises again on the third day, successful in his payments. And should we receive it through faith, atonement is made final and full. And it's taken care of. The damage is taken care of. And therefore, we can live in forgiveness and freedom and now extend that same sort of graciousness to others. Just a side point. I want us to understand that and I want us to be in no way ashamed of the cross and the atonement accomplished for you and for me and all that it means. Don't let people fool you with arguments about there's no need for atonement or somehow it's primitive. That's a primitive concept. No. It's an essential, necessary concept. It's a reality. So let us not be ashamed of it, but boast and tell others about this truth. So this story has lots of payment. Uh, continuing. The son refuses to go in and the father's response is noteworthy. The son uh, says, I'm not going in. And again, that's a big statement. And then it says that the father um, came out and entreated him. That's what it says in the passage. That's also shocking culturally because the normal response would have been for the father to send someone out, a village elder or a servant, to, to tell the elder son, your father has requested your presence inside. And that statement would carry a lot of weight. Basically, are you going to shame your father and your family in the village or are you going to come inside? That's what would have been a normal response. Or he could have brought it a step further that the father could have sent uh, a village elder to say, your father demands you to come in and to not shame him in, the, in your village. Or even it would have been appropriate even to step it up further because it's such a bold statement. It's that best man going like this off to the side. He could, have, he could have come out and said, your father will disinherit you if you don't come in immediately. That's the sort of response that would have been expected in the culture. And yet the father himself, again, humbles himself, even shames himself by coming out personally to the son. And it says that he, it doesn't say he rebukes him. It doesn't say he reprimands him. It says he entreats him. And that's a word more like, please, son, please come in. This is right. This is good. So he, he's urging him. He's pleading with him in, in a, a forceful but kind way. That's what the father does. Again, we see the father's character in entreating the son in his self-righteousness. And, and oh, what a picture of our heavenly father. Our heavenly father has every right to demand and every right to deal with us in our rebellion. And yet he's patient. He's kind. The voice of the Lord is not rude. Um, it's, it's gentle. Merciful. This is who our Father is. This is what He's like. He's like the Father in the story. And it's interesting to watch now. It, it, the, the Son does even worse than to refuse to come in. His response to the Father's amazing humility and gentleness to come out and meet with Him privately while everybody's watching what's going on, by the way. Watching the Father come out and entreat Him his response at that point should have been like the younger brother's response when the father ran to him and embraced him. He should have bro been broken by it and said, Father, I'm, I'm so sorry. This has been really hard for me, but I want to honor you. He should have said that, but he doesn't. What does it say? First word out of his mouth. Not uh, dad. Not in that culture, by the way, you would have said, oh, father, or dear father, or honored father. That's how you always would talk to your father. He says, look. And you don't have to have grown up in the ancient Near East. No, you don't start a sentence with your dad with look. I, I thought about this. Even in my worst days of rebellion as a kid, I never would have said to my dad, look. <laughs> I was never would have said it. I knew enough just to say, dad, look. Right? I, would, I mean, I, would, I might have said look, but I would have said dad first. <laughs> this is audacious. It's awful. Look. Look you! And so Jesus is telling this story and He's portraying the attitude of the elder son to, 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 to see where He is. And, and He's full of poison. He's twisted in His understanding of the Father. And everything, and it all pours out of this moment. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. 
Everything comes out and you see his heart laid bare in his anger. And he has a perspective that's portrayed here, right? He, he has lived, he thinks that he's never disobeyed the Father's command and probably outwardly he, he hasn't. He's probably been obedient. But his heart is so far from the Father. He doesn't get the Father at all. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, he's missing something. And we don't know all that's behind that, but maybe he never did get a young goat. But the father's response is, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Son, I, I would have given you a thousand goats if you had just asked. We would have had a party every week with your friends. But you've missed me all these years. You're lost in your father's house. He's missed the Father. He has a twisted view of the Father. He's not seeing the Father as the Father portrays Himself as, he, as we see Him in the story. He sees the Father as a, as a master and Himself as a slave in His own house. And His relationship, His religious life, His religious devotion, because this, this is a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes who are very devout, is all about avoiding punishment and earning blessings. If I just do this well enough, I'll keep from getting in trouble and I'll earn blessing. And so, it's not a father that he knows. It's a vending machine. It's a spiritual vending machine. He doesn't want a father. He wants a vending machine. Or he, wants, he lives as a slave to a master. It's all about avoiding punishment and earning blessing. There doesn't need to be a person there. He could be a machine. It could be karma, right? It's really not any different than karma. Even an impersonal force in the universe. That's how he relates to his father. So he's been at home all these years. He's, he's obeyed, at least outwardly, yet his heart has not been near his father in any way. His father might as well be a machine. And he doesn't understand his father. He doesn't understand grace. He sees himself as somehow earning. I've earned it. And that's, uh, by the way, a... a Elder brother gets exposed when an elder brother doesn't get what he or she thinks they ought to get. When there's tragedy in life, it's just a, it's just a gauge. It's a, it's a, it shows our hearts. And I don't know if you've ever done it. I have. There's something hits hard and you're like, why God? What did I do to deserve this? And we're not getting God when we do that. We're missing God. Because it isn't about that. It's about a father, a genuine father. And he says the father's reply is so fantastic. Even when he says all this, all this, all this poison spills out of the sun. Look, and he says all this, and, and it's just hurtful and it's terrible. And what is the father's response at that point? He starts with the word son. Not look, not you, but son. And actually, the word, the particular word is not just the son. A son, it's it's the son technon. It's son, it means my my boy. My buddy. That's what he's saying. It's amazing. Because it's ugly. And his heart is still there. And, the, and remember the Pharisees and the scribes are listening to this, and, and the, the use of words that Jesus would have had at this point would have conveyed that that nuance. And they're hearing it, and they're hearing what the Father is like. Son, my buddy, my boy who I love, you're always with me. And I'd be glad to give you a scrap here and there. No, all that is mine is yours. My heart is yours. My life is yours. What I own here in this state, it's all yours. Where's this stuff coming from about earning something? You're my son. And he's missed all this. He sees God as a legalist. He's missed it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get this reality. And guys, the, 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 again, this story is here for us because we drift. We drift into elder brother behavior. We drift Maybe you've, you've come to trust in Christ and understand grace, but you can drift and I can drift and maybe you're at the place where you've drifted away even at this moment. And your life in the Lord is about oh, uh, avoiding 
punishment and somehow earning blessing. And if you can just get that right, if you just get the right formula, if you just have enough time in your Bible, if you just avoid saying certain things and you can just be at church enough, somehow you'll avoid trouble and you'll get blessing. And that's your relationship with the Father. And you're really no different than the elder brother in the story. Because you've missed the Father. You're not understanding the Father. If you're living in fear, thinking somehow, you know, it's just I, I live in a world full of evil and it's ready to consume me, and if I just try hard enough, I'll survive. You've missed the Father. Because the Father says, my son or my daughter, you are always with me. And everything that is mine is yours. That's the basis. That's to be the basis of the Christian life. Now don't get me wrong here. We've seen in the story, we know God cares about right and wrong. He cares about goodness and evil. He cares about holiness. But the, but the whole reason for holiness is to flow out of our love for the Father. Now fear of God is a good starting point, but not a sufficient point to live on. It protects us from doing stuff that's really stupid. But the Father wants us to do it out of love for Him. He wants a relationship. He wants you to know Him as He is. He wants you to, to see all of life through that filter of His amazing, gracious love for us in Christ. That, that He's always with us and everything that is His is ours in Christ. And therefore we love Him. And therefore we love His ways. Therefore we obey Him. Therefore we walk in His ways. His commands are good and they're meant first to drive us not to determination to earn something, but to desperation to run to Him for mercy and grace. It's always worked that way. He's always been a gracious God. Gracious before mankind even fell in His provision. And as soon as they fell into sin, what did He do? He pursued them and He provided for them. And the whole storyline of the Bible is God's provision for younger brothers who wander and sin. His grace is part of the plan. He wants to be gracious to you. And so, the holiness of God, the commands of God are meant to drive you, make you aware, I need to be rescued. I need somebody to rescue me. I know I'm doing wrong. Help me, O oh God. And to run to Him for grace and help. And then in that place of reconciliation with Him, to now learn to love Him and to live in His commands and to live in holiness. That's how it's supposed to happen. That's the storyline of the Bible. And elder brothers get it wrong. It's interesting too, Tim Keller in his book Prodigal God, which has been very helpful for me as well in this series, talks about how often um, what you see is people who kind of bank on the elder brother formula will eventually break and they'll become younger brothers. And so that he he thinks that's why you see this behavior where people who have been devout their whole lives all of a sudden just go off the rails like, what happened? Well, they were getting God wrong the whole time and when they realized it didn't work, they just went wild on the other side. If you want to be holy, learn who the Father is and where holiness comes from. It comes from knowing this One who's always with us, who's amazing in humility and love and grace, who gives us everything. From Him, that though we don't deserve it, who honors us when we should be shamed, who takes upon Himself shame. So let me ask, will you determine to get the Father right? Will you determine to actually believe that He is gracious, that He is good? Will you stop running scared and rest in His forgiveness? Will you stop thinking you can somehow maintain enough goodness to keep in His good graces? Instead, just receive His free forgiveness and His life in you to help you walk with Him. Don't insult your Father. Draw near to Him. Depend on Him. Receive Him. There's one other aspect of the story I want to touch on. Um, it, it's in the story. It's an aspect that we find as we look at the two stories, the two parables before the longer story. There's a lot of similarities in these three stories. Of course, there's something valuable lost. There's a... a Celebration when it's found. There's the portrayal of the joy of our Heavenly Father in rescuing lost sinners. We see that through all three stories. But there's a difference between the third story and the first two. There's something different. And if you look at it, you can see it. 
In the first two stories, there is somebody who seeks the lost thing. But in the third story, there's nobody seeking the lost item. And that is, I believe, intentional by Jesus because He's speaking to who? The elder brothers. And that absence, that the dramatic absence of a seeker in the third story is saying, you guys should be the seekers. Because in their culture, again, the elder brother would represent the heart of the father, the wishes of the father. And if the father was looking for that younger, younger brother, he's spending time each day, is he going to come back today? The elder brother would have understood that, should have understood it, and should have got, gone out and found him himself. That was the expectation. That's how an elder brother in that culture works. So the absence of that in the third story is a statement to these elder brothers that guys, you should have been like the woman and the shepherd in the previous two stories. Sweeping the house, searching everywhere for that lost sheep until you found it. You should have been like that. And they failed. Instead, they were opposed to the father. A true elder brother understands the heart of the Father and lives in His amazing love and grace. And from that place, in that relationship with the Father, knowing the Father's heart, living in it, has the same heart and, and goes out and seeks younger brothers that they might be found and come back to the Father reconciled and repentant. There's a story, a true story, about two brothers in the Vietnam War, in the early days of the Vietnam War. Dan Dawson uh, was in the Army and his plane crashed in remote Vietnam near Tai Hong. And Dan's disappearance would have been like in many of the other casualties of that conflict, just ending and simply notifying the family that he was lost and missing in action and moving on, assuming he was dead. But Dan had a true older brother named Don. And Don and Dan had grown up together as best friends. The family had lived in Alaska and they had spent days fishing and hunting and exploring together. They were inseparable. They both um, were young fathers together. They both served in the military, uh, Dan in the Army and Don in the Navy Reserve. And they had lost their dad uh, fairly recently in a fishing accident. And it was just them and their mom left. And they meant the world to each other. So when Dan's plane went down, Don decided to go looking for him at his own expense. Vietnam, during the conflict. Paid for his own flight, equipped himself, left his wife and kids with Dan's wife and kids back home and their mom, and flew to Vietnam. And he went into the village of Tai Hong and lived there and would patrol the different villages, handing out leaflets. Those are the actual leaflets. Offering about a $1,000 reward for uh, information about his brother. He faced daily threats to his life. He lived in harsh conditions. Think of scorpions and rats crawling on you during the night, being followed by communist agents. At any point, you could have been shot and killed. Eating things like cooked rats and rancid soy milk. But he didn't care because he kept telling himself, this isn't about me. This is about Dan. He became known, actually, through the villages as quote, the brother of the pilot. The brother of the pilot. And they respected him. Even the, the communists respected him and, and allowed him to keep looking. Eventually, though, he was taken prisoner uh, and he was told by the, the Viet Cong that his, his brother had died and was buried in a location known only to them and that they would take care of his grave. So not to worry. Not, and they told him to go back and never come back again. And that's how the story ended. But he was known there as the brother of the pilot. He was a true older brother. In the story in Luke 15, the Pharisees failed to be like Dawn. But it points to the ultimate elder brother. His name is Jesus. And this elder brother came and lived in this sin-infested world to seek us out, despised and mocked and rejected, a man of sorrows, lived a life of goodness and taught truth, lived in love, and spent his life seeking lost people. But it wasn't just his life 
He came to give in those ways, but He came to give His life on the cross for brothers and sisters like us. To pay the price to free us from our sin and the damage of our rebellion. He went to the cross in our stead, took on Himself the deepest shame, paid the penalty, shed His blood, died and was buried to seek us out to be the true elder brother. To rescue us so that through faith in Him and His victorious death and His resurrection on the third day, we could be rescued and come into the Father's house and live as sons and daughters. Guys, when we get that truth, when we understand that truth, it changes us. It adjusts how we understand the Father and the Son. And the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand who He is. We understand this rescue. And that truth, that reality protects us from drifting to being a younger brother or an older brother. Because in that truth, most of all, we see the goodness of God and His glory. And it keeps us from drifting. If the band could come up as we transition. So let me just ask you to consider three possible responses to Luke 15. We've covered these before. But first, don't be a younger brother. Understand what the Father's like. That He's good and He's glorious. There's nothing better than God and His ways. And yes, there's times when we have to wait for our rewards. And yes, there's pain and He uses that. But in the end, it will all be worth it beyond what you can understand. He's good and He's glorious. So don't be a younger brother. Don't think there's a solution somewhere else. There isn't. It won't work. All sin is deception. And all of God's ways are good. So run to Him and live in Him and His grace. Don't be an older brother. Don't try to earn your way to His good favor, but receive it freely given in Christ. Relate to Him in these ways. Live in the joy and the freedom of that. And then thirdly, let that change how you think about others who don't yet know God. Let His, the Father's enthusiasm for prodigals coming home infect your life and fill you with love and compassion for others. Learn in this to run to those who are beginning to repent. To embrace them. To put up with the stink and the mess that they bring. Because the Father's love is so extravagant. Those things won't bother you if you know what the Father's like. Let, let His heart beat as yours. These are, I think, three among many applications I think are fitting from this wonderful section of Scripture. Let's pray and then we'll transition.